Hello and welcome to the Palladium Podcast, Episode 6. I'm your host, Jonah Bennett, Editor-in-Chief of Palladium Magazine, and we're joined by... I'm Wolf Tyvee, Editor of Palladium. I'm Ash Moulton, Managing Editor. And we're also joined by Matt Ellison, the author of one of our recent pieces called The German Strategic Mastermind Behind America's Post-War Order. It's a fantastic article. You can follow him on Twitter at MG Ellison. Uh, but before we uh, go any further, I, I just want to uh, go through the reader mailbag this week and do our usual question of the week. So this, this, this week, the question is, is not going to be answered by the editors. It's going to be answered by, by Matt solely. And the reason for that is because we have a couple highly bespoke mason jars of water here. And one of them is filled with disgusting uh, estrogenic tap water. And, and the other is, is um, incredibly tasty uh, and highly purified water. Uh, from the Berkey filter. From the, the Berkey filter. Probably, it, it, it's just incredible water. And, and we're going to see if Matt has the skills to see which is which. Is which. So why don't, why don't you take a taste uh, now? And, and, and Thank you for having me, guys. <laughs> I, I, um, you know, I didn't know that I was going to have this honor bestowed on me. Yeah. Do it. Just do what you can. Just do what All you right. can. Having okay, personally so. tasted the Berkey water, I can attest that my muscles were stronger and my brain was bigger, wow. and I felt like a new man. All right, go go for it. Okay, for so it. this is um, jar. This is the. the this jar. is jar B. This is jar B. Oh, jar B. That's jar okay, A. So should I start with jar A? You can start with whatever jar you want. <laughs> okay, we'll start with jar A. We'll okay, do it in okay. the, the proper order. Okay. 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 Does it smell funny? Okay, how, how does how does it taste? It tastes good. Tastes like water. Yeah, uh, right. well, pretty normal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the second one tasted much more like normal tap water than than the first one. So I'm gonna. So, but I but I want to be sure though. So I mean, take your. There's no real rush here. There's there's no real <laughs> rush. The suspense is killing me, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The f I'm I'm gonna go with the first one. The A is the bespoke. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's incorrect. <laughs> it's, uh, jar B was the highly purified bespoke <laughs> water. I'm sorry, that's we're gonna end the this podcast. This is what happens right when you, <laughs> this is what happens when you're you're marinated yeah, for I'm years in myself horrific out. sewage water. <laughs> All right. Well, oh, no. that, you know that's enough of that. That was the I, uh, question of the week. I've never. I, I. You know, I thought I had a future as a water sommelier, <laughs> but you know, clearly, once this gets out, you know, it's all over. My career is over. That's, that's it. All right. Now we're gonna we're gonna move on to de discussing uh, Matt's article. So so Matt, why don't you just um, give us a brief overview of the article and what led you to. Uh, find Gustav Hilger's work in the first place, given that when you started looking into him, he didn't even have a, a Wikipedia page. Yeah, sure. Well, again, um, thanks for having me, and thanks for, um, you know, giving me the opportunity to um, publish this piece. I think, um, well, so Gustav Hilger is this interesting figure of the, um, of the kind of the middle of the 20th century, 
um, at this at the kind of the epicenter of German, U.S. and Soviet um, relations, which obviously were kind of pivotal and kind of shaping. Yeah, just, um, just a little bit important, you know. Yeah, it's shaping like international affairs during during the period, and um, I I. Well, so do you want me to give you first, like, an overview of the article, or just, I guess I can... Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. get on to the topic. Yeah, yeah I, I can get, get, get to this question of how I got onto it. Um, I was, so I was very interested in this idea of history and memory, and how our, like, our conception of the past kind of deviates from what actually happened, especially in the realm of, like, foreign policy. Um, there's this great book... Um, about about France that's called the Vichy syndrome and it's kind of about how French national identity was kind of was kind of artificially reconstructed by de Gaulle and people around him after the end of mm-hmm. the second world war to kind of be be along the lines of like the French liberated themselves and, and kind of these these kind of myths of of a kind of continuous um uh French identity that that kind of transcended Vichy and Vichy was just kind of this bump in the road of like the great French identity. So I was interested in applying some of that uh, that kind of method to the American context. And what struck me was um, was uh, uh, how Nazi officials had been um, kind of captured or variously like protected and brought to the United States after the end of the Second World War. Like uh, uh, Operation Paperclip. Right, like Operation people. Paperclip. But I was interested in kind of really getting more into the nitty gritty of how that happened and kind of um, how it cohered or discohered with with our national um, kind of mythological history of, of the kind of post-war period. Mm-hmm. Um, and so actually thanks to... Um, a kind of late 1990s congressional effort called the uh, like Nazi War Crimes uh, Records Act or something like that in the in the mid 90s. There's mandatory declassification of a lot of kind of more sensitive documents uh, oh, regarding uh, people like uh, Dr. Gustav Hilger um, and kind Doctor of their, their role Hilger. with uh, with regard to the U.S. government um, after the war. So. Um, so, for instance, in Hilger's, so so I literally just started going through um, at the National Archives the files that they had on uh, that were released. They they kind of have a series of name files that uh, were released about people, like hundreds of of Germans that were kind mm-hmm. of uh, considered to be you know, persons of interest as far as war crimes and then, mm-hmm. and then kind of the connections with Americans. So Hilger was one of them and he was probably, he was the most interesting to me just because of how once I, once I start looking through his file and then also looking at some other, um, some other kind of secondary sources that mentioned him, I realized that he was this fascinating figure, um, like I say, at the center of, of U.S., Soviet, and, and German relations. I mean, I write in the article uh, that he was probably the only person to personally know uh, Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, and Konrad Adenauer, and and he also happened to know George Kennan, and, and yet, like, he's almost unheard of, especially outside of Germany. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, if for no other reason than, than kind of his his central role in the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, I think he's an important figure, but then when you kind of c- 
consider the context in which he was brought to the U.S. after the war and and um, and, um, and just just what informal connections he has. I mean, I know we titled the piece "The German Strategic Mastermind Behind the Postwar Order." I don't know that such a strong case can really be made um, definitively, but I, but I do think you know he plays played a role in in kind of shaping the the big politics of the period, and and he's still an important figure that people should mm-hmm. know about. So what, um, this, this sort of gets us to the article itself. Like what was the thesis of the article? What were you trying to get at with, with that? Where, like, let's just go through that just so we have some background of what we're talking about here. Yeah. So the thesis of the article is that, um, well, I, I kind of, it's kind of at its core, it's this history essay about Hilger and, um, how he was brought to the U S after the end of the war and also his own kind of backstory and how that that figured in the the kind of the statecraft and the politics but um the the essay is kind of the the article more broadly is about american foreign policy and Mm -hmm. the kind of the history there and and i was trying to show how um how the statecraft and ideology work in American foreign relations and how it seems to have kind of changed significantly um, over time. Um, That there was, at one point, much stronger traditions of statecraft um, Mm -hmm. in American foreign relations, probably um, from from the period around the Second World War to maybe... um, into the early 70s and then since the 70s um that has kind of uh declined and then after the cold war it's kind of declined even further if i can just jump in here i think the thing that jumped out at me reading this piece was looking at these three powers america germany the soviet union that are loggerheads with each other they're enemies and yet these diplomatic institutions are so intertwined with each other that even through the war and through the start of this Cold War, uh, they were able, individuals, right, were able to assist each other um, in in getting extracted from uh, enemy territory in coming over and starting new lives. And it goes into the building of the liberal order when you start asking these questions about how were people able to create this new set of institutions right after the war. And there's a lot of historical questions that can be asked. But on the personal level, I think what gets missed out or underemphasized is the fact that the people building this order all knew each other on this very personal level. And the description you gave in the piece about, you know, the the sort of, um, uh, I forget the word you use, but uh, this getaway that they had where they would all meet with each other and talk in private yeah the dacha um, the dacha yeah and you know when you come to after the war and the you can see it in the u.s administrations following world war ii several of them in succession uh, even up to eisenhower um these are people who not only fought together but actually in some cases helped to govern countries in the aftermath of the war during the rebuilding process and by the time that they rise to the top of domestic U.S. politics, they not only know each other, but they have the sort of extensive experience and a network that's spanning the world. And the the obvious conclusion uh, in terms of a question that has to be asked is when that network stop, stops existing, 
can the institutions that were created really continue in the same way? I think that was um, really what I read as uh, the interesting thesis at the core of the piece there. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's that's one of the strains that runs through the whole history of um, of kind of uh, the group that we're talking about, and also um, the consequences of such a group not playing the central role in U.S. foreign policy making. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, the the Dacha House, where a lot of the strategy was was defined? And that, that was in the Soviet Union. Yeah, yes. so so the story really with Hilger and the Americans really starts at um, at a dacha outside of Moscow. And, and so these are kind of like almost like log cabins in Russia that um, are kind of weekend getaways or um, almost like summer house type, type situations. And um, when they reopened the U.S. Embassy in... Um, in Russia, which was the first time that they had an embassy to the Soviet Union in 19, um, in the early 1930s, a bunch of diplomats um, at the U.S. Embassy rented a dacha there, and, and kind of there's this core group around Charles Thayer, Charles Bolin, George Kennan, um, Carmel Afi, and um, the ambassador William Bullitt, and so they create what in their memoirs and in papers. And some refer to as the Dacha crowd, um, but it includes other Western diplomats, um, especially Brits and Germans, such as um, from from the British, uh, Fitzroy MacLean, who is considered one of the inspirations for Ian Fleming's James Bond. Um, from the Germans, there was uh, Hans Herwart uh, von Bittenfeld, um, who is kind of more well known. I think I think he um, he also. Is well known for um, having maybe played a role in one of the plots to assassinate Hitler, mm-hmm. um, but also for having spied for the Americans um, during during the 30s in, in Russia. Um, and then, of course, among them was also uh, Gustav Hilger, um, who was kind of considered to be this like encyclopedia of all things Russia and, and Soviet. He was himself um, born in Russia to German parents in the, mm-hmm. um, the 1880s. And Stalin supposedly said of him that German heads of state and German ambassadors to Moscow came and went, but Gustav Hilger remained. And so mm-hmm. he was kind of this, this kind of like figure of institutional, of basically Western, specifically German institutional knowledge about the Soviet Union um, mm-hmm. that was kind of built up over a lifetime of, of living in first Imperial Russia and then um, in the Soviet Union, and also his unique role as a German diplomat gave him access to um, the kind of the centers of power and to people like Stalin and Molotov that like were were kind of inaccessible to a lot of even journalists or ordinary uh, certainly to mm-hmm. ordinary Soviets. Mm-hmm. So the Dacha crowd kind of functioned as this as this um, this kind of. I don't want to say secret society because there was nothing really especially secret about it, but but they kind of described this society um, of of connections. Um, yeah, like one of the things you mentioned in the piece that I found really interesting, that uh, would be interesting to hear more about, is like the people having this idea that there was only certain people sort of admitted into this Dacha crowd, like that they had to make sure that this someone was like very trustworthy before they were sort of like part of the crowd. Um, 
Yeah, um, that's something that Herwart writes in his memoirs. I He doesn't really explain that too much. I mean, I think there's clearly this sense in which they're, they're, the Dacha crowd is this, like, outlet for... You know, I think in the words of um, of one of the of one of the authors, like like beleaguered Western diplomats. You know, so mm-hmm. they, it's a place where they can let their hair down when right. they're in this kind of hostile climate of of behind the Iron Curtain, and or or actually this is this predates the Iron Curtain, but but you know in in the in the Soviet sphere, right? Mm-hmm. So they're they're kind of deep in in Russia. They're constantly being like surra- surveilled by by secret police and mm-hmm. and Russian and you know Soviet um KGB. So this is like a way for them to kind of let their hair down. I think that's really what the what the fears were about and why right. and why there's like this vetting involved. Also there's there's all kinds of like intrigue as far as <laughs> various like sorted <laughs> um you know, I think sorted details. I think it's described as kind of a carnivalesque atmosphere in 1930s Uh moscow um so so there's kind of there's more i think there's there's still more that probably hasn't been um been kind of revealed about about that whole atmosphere you know it's funny though because the that term carnivalesque i think it gets the heart of how people in general but i think especially westerners see this let's call it secretive atmosphere in which some of politics takes place, that it's kind of sordid and you don't really want this happening. But I don't know if that's true. And I think in the context of this piece, we actually see some of why that might not be true. Because if we assume that all politics, all political connection making should be done in public, in the open and under public scrutiny, well, we have to think about the fact that in public, people are generally acting in a different way, and specifically, they often want to win over a crowd. Um, they also don't want to make mistakes, and so in public, people will be more risk-averse. It's not just domestic reactions, but, you, you know, it's kind of odd to reveal your you know, private strategic deliberations to your opponents. Yeah, like, like that's, that's the thing. It's like states. Politics, politics inherently involves opponents, both domestic and foreign. And so like, you, you need to have this secrecy within diplomacy. And I think this is something that, that you touch on in the piece is like the, the sort of place for, uh, for like the, the diplomatic and, and statecraft machine to have like a different internal view than, than what they're talking yeah. about. And specifically like, spaces where it's permitted to speak more openly and also to make mistakes, um, because that's where these long-term connections can be built. And I think, as we see in the piece here, those connections are actually, in a certain sense, a public good, because if you have a governing class, or in this case, a diplomatic core that has very strong personal connections that have been forged in these sorts of environments, that actually enables them to do quite incredible work, such as bringing over you know, uh, personnel of an enemy power and then using their talents to build up your own right, country. Right, and and I would just add that this is something I thought about in the context of um, of Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, which are back in the news. Of course, like the big WikiLeaks, um, well, one of the big WikiLeaks releases was of U.S. diplomatic cables, right? And so, right, yeah, um, it kind of gets right at the heart of this question of diplomatic you know state secrets and um 
what role diplomatic secrecy has in a, in, in a liberal society or in, in a democratic society. And, and there's, almost an, there's almost an implicit narrative in, in kind of the, the media discussion around WikiLeaks that it's good to have transparency into yeah. diplomatic process when I think, I mean, to Asher's point, I, I, I don't think anyone would say like, you know, necessarily that that we want like t all of politics to be shrouded behind a veil of secrecy but at the same time you need to have a degree of um of secrecy to have flexibility on negotiations say with people who don't want to be necessarily um have it in the newspaper the next day exactly yeah, yeah. how much they were willing to you know right. concede in a negotiated process you know there's this kind of old diplomatic notion that um you know nothing's nothing's been uh been decided until everything's been decided just for this particular reason that if you have people kind of going around saying oh well the other day the americans were willing to to do to concede to x y and z well right. then it affects their ability to yeah. to make that concession or to actually kind of deliver on it yeah, and coming back to the domestic politics angle and the WikiLeaks stuff, like you see the, you see a lot of people always calling for transparency, right? Like calling for more transparency in the, the official processes or whatever, more transparency from the diplomatic stuff. Like that's what kind of the, the current, the WikiLeaks kind of represents and actually has a lot of uh, sort of uh, support among other factions. Um, I, I think sort of what's going on there is there's there's sort of like people who are not quite at the center not like not quite at the, the center of power they they want to like disable the the central power in a way like and and making it more transparent makes them more able to outmaneuver it right and and like in internal politics and then the other thing is um if you did have some kind of big transparency push that hit everybody there's going to be like uh, like the impact of that is going to be different de depending on like how things are organized and how official they are. Like the more official things are going to be more hit by the um, transparency type stuff and the less official things are going to be less hit. So what a call for transparency actually does in an interesting way is moves power out of the official mechanisms and into the informal conspiracies that don't have to be um, transparent. Another thing that I want to note about the uh, abstract call for transparency is that um, it actually gives way to the sort of seesaw conception of WikiLeaks, which is to say that since its founding, um, both Democrats and Republicans have gone back and forth repeatedly on, on whether they love or hate WikiLeaks. And that tracks pretty closely uh, with the extent to which WikiLeaks goes after one side or mm -hmm. another with, with its releases. Right. Yeah, I would just say on on both of those points, there's this. I, I think what I think WikiLeaks is in a lot of ways responding to the same kind of like institutional um, problems more or less consciously. I don't know that like Assange is actually aware of kind of the the function that he plays totally in the in the larger system. But mm -hmm. I think he's in a lot of ways. It's it's almost like a much a kind of. Um, almost like an accelerationist type type view on oh well if we just shine more light or like publicize what's going on like mm -hmm. that'll somehow kind of lead to better institutions or lead to a better outcome when i think 
um, what actually tends to happen, or at least in the case of like the the release of the diplomatic cables, was that to your point, Wolf, like it had it kind of just played into whatever power politics were already going on, and in some ways, it actually helped certain factions who were able to kind of yeah. take advantage of whatever the newfound information they found in it. And it didn't really necessarily like do anything in the positive sense to, to like make the American people more aware of like how it's government, how our government can, can conducts diplomacy, say, right. which is, which could have been one of the, you know, one of the kind of sure. byproducts of it. So, um, Let's get back to the the overarching narrative here with with Hilger. So, with the relationships he formed um, earlier, it, it seems that they that they did help him after about 1945 when he surrendered to to U.S. forces. Um, so let's talk about um, his uh, move to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess it wasn't quite as agentic as that. He was moved to the right. U.S. more right. or less. So just yeah. let's just go into that for a bit. Yeah. So, um, so Hilger kind of after um, after the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact falls apart, obviously because Hitler invades um, the Soviet Union in June 1941. Um, the German diplomats are kicked out of. Of Russia, they're sent back. Hitler, uh, Hilger, rather, Hilger is put in um, in charge of Eastern questions for um, the German Nazi German Foreign Minister uh, Ribbentrop in Berlin, and that position um, puts him, I guess, in contact with a lot of the um, the Nazi um, apparatus, including like the Reich Main Security Office, RHSA, which is involved in the, the Holocaust and um, and as well as the like the SS. And so so obviously even though um, Hilger um, well maybe it's not obvious, but Hilger was never a Nazi party member, but that kind of didn't really like uh, preclude him from from being you know, participating in in war crimes and atrocities under the Third mm-hmm. Reich, and so this fact is like not lost on a kind of the, his American connections. And I think for them it was very much a calculation, both in personal terms as like this is this is a good guy. I mean, in the view, not in my view necessarily, but in the in the view of. Um, people like Kennan, like, well, this guy was a civil servant who was caught up in a lot of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was, he was not a, necessarily a bad guy. And also it happens to coincide with the kind of the national interest in that he knows a lot about a country that we, mm-hmm. um, know very little about. And so they bring him in 45 to the U S, um, with other, a lot of other, um, German technicians, and um, officials, um, and then they kind of they kind of interrogate him more or less um, in in a, in a series of interviews over months about uh, about the Soviet Union and kind of in that process he demonstrates uh, his value to um, to them and then um, there's there's kind of more that happens but but um, but that's Get, what happens right after the getting war. into the war crimes thing like. It's, it's, there's this really interesting tension there of like suppose you are just a dedicated civil servant and you 
get caught up in some insane regime like the you know the rest of the government goes insane and they're doing a bunch of crazy stuff and and that you don't necessarily agree with but like you're the obvious guy for the job um which is like what was happening in Hilger's case is like he has to manage this situation where he's sort of aware of some crazy stuff going on that he doesn't agree with um that's like a really interesting moral dilemma of what to do in that situation like does he just resign does he just make his views known does he go along with it like and and i know yeah. like one of the things that you mentioned is that he he kind of had active disagreement with with mm -hmm. like their their plans in the east and and he would sort of like make his views known and then like to the point where at one point he he got threatened and told to shut up is that right yeah so you're right it's this very complicated question from like an ethical or like moral dimension yeah of of um and and i think that's true with a lot of a lot of when you look at um look at the, i mean there's no there's really no clear way to um you know and i to think about hilger i think mm -hmm. it's not clear on the on the moral side what the right or or kind of wrong mm -hmm. action is there but but in terms of um securing an outcome that's that's more personally beneficial it it makes sense to kind of ingratiate yourself to the new power structure uh, and and make yourself useful to their interests in such a way that they have the incentive to actually to, 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 to win yeah. the um, moral perception story, right? Because yeah. there's going to be a difference about uh, between whether uh, your your actions were moral per se or or whether the the story is out there that what you did was moral. And those are two very different questions, right? There's mm -hmm. the the you know actual fundamental objective moral status of those actions and the public perception of them but it's the public perception of them that ends up mattering at the end of the day to to like whether you get whether you have any mm -hmm. any kind of like freedom or, or whether you're you know actually tried for war crimes and tossed in prison or executed or yeah, yeah. whether you end up advising uh some of the top foreign policy uh founders in the 20th century in the u.s yeah. And it also feeds into, I think, the two philosophies that you see on part of the United States in terms of to what extent is it possible to flip the institutions of an enemy structure into ones that are now friendly to you. And in the case of Germany and Japan, we do see one that essentially assumes that you can take out a leadership and then uh, reform and reintegrate the the lower parts of those institutions, so to speak, into a structure that is pro-American, uh, democratic and liberal and so on. The other um, philosophy, obviously, is the kind of one that pursues uh, an uncompromising uh, sort of a sterilization of the institutions that you saw under actions like debathification. The problem with that approach is that it depends on being able to actually have the personnel and manpower to en masse replace um, the old institutions with new people of the same or greater competence. And in a complex country like Germany, really any modern state, that's going to be extremely difficult to do. And so uh, yes, like, like Hilger's, even, Hilger's even depending the on of... the U.S. accepting that first version of that philosophy yeah well like even in the case of of iraq right which is what you're talking about with the debathification like 
you know, they fire all the Bathists um, and try to set up this new state. And it's basically a failed state almost immediately. And all the Bathists go and start ISIS. Hmm. But notice as well that it's more possible to do the first philosophy because those um, those connections already exist in the network. Because if you don't have any connection whatsoever to personnel, then you essentially have to take a public judgment about their moral character and how much you can trust them. And that was almost certainly the case in Iraq. But in the case of Germany, uh, there were in fact these networks existing and diplomats could personally vouch for the character or the role that someone had played. And that actually made it far easier to then choose who you were going to reintegrate. Yeah, I mean, there's a few different questions here, right? Like one of them is, is the sort of trustworthiness question. Like, okay, do we have information that leads us to believe that we can trust this person to be like generally in line with what we're trying to do and, and to cooperate with us? In, in which case, like the personal connections and so on, like a really important thing. But there's this other interesting question in the Hilgrid case that I think is like implicitly on the table, which is what would we have him do in, in like 1941, 1942, etc. right? Um, and, and I think that question is very, very difficult to answer when you look at the thing and you actually like, you don't try to like, just like, oh yeah, he was involved in war crimes, therefore he's like a bad person. Um, you, you actually dig into it. It's like, all right, well, well, like if he made the wrong choice, it implies that there was something else he could have done. Um, and, and like digging into what those things were and coming up with like a superior answer to his situation, I think is like, uh, an, an exercise that is, that right. is kind of an, a very interesting exercise yeah, so, to do. Cause I've thought, so I've actually thought about that, that question quite a bit as I, you know, cause when you're, when you yeah. get to, when you're, when you're going through these archives and you're, you kind of feel like you're almost, you know, I mean, clearly, clearly, you're not you're not literally meeting this person, but you almost right. feel like you kind of get a sense of their their personality or, or whatever. Right. Um, it it seems to me like he was a, both a bit naive and also a bit of a coward, and that's mm-hmm. actually something that comes out in some of the people that that knew him have described him that way. And and so the question obviously is like, where is the line between survival instincts and cowardice, yeah. right? Because yeah. um, clearly he was not the only German diplomat that continued to faithfully serve the Reich, even though it got ter- taken over by by a kind of like a crazy, um, yeah. uh, ruthless and, 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 and mass murdering, you know, uh, ideological regime but at the same time um you know i guess what you want you could say he probably should have uh been more active in his like sabotage maybe but it's worth pointing out too that this burden of that the personnel in a regime are morally expected to resist this is itself an outgrowth of the post-world war ii attitude that was taken to those questions because you know and germany in particular had this you know strong cultural expectation that you do your job and sort of obey hierarchy but this was true across the board even mm-hmm. in the united states before world war ii the idea that you would actively um 
you know, ultimately seek to undermine your own government as an official. I mean, uh, there were probably situations where that would be maybe expected somehow, but it was a far narrower window than it would be now. And that in and of itself is an outgrowth of ideological war, right? Which is really yes. the Enlightenment era. I mean, b before the French Revolution, before the, you know, the late 1700s, 1800s, I think you'd be hard pressed to find almost anyone uh, kind of saying that you're supposed to hold personnel morally accountable for doing their work in a regime in which they operated, uh, unless there was kind of just, you know, universally recognized um, horrific action going on. And I, I would say that after World War II, um, you know, the, the sense was that these these sorts of things had happened, and so you had to have a stronger moral framework. But the people we're looking at here are not operating in a world in which that already exists. Yeah, like an interesting point here is like to, to judge people for like not having resisted hard enough or something sort of implicitly sets up this expectation that people ought to resist governments that they disagree with in active ways, including sabotage, um, like up to the point of like aiding foreign powers. And that that doesn't only apply to America's enemies, that also applies to America as well, right? So it's like, Ameri is America setting up this moral expectation that we ought to sabotage our own government and our own society and aid foreign powers if we like disagree with something that that the regime is doing by by the way That's i like don't exactly really expect question. i mean mo mo most of the people in these situations um when they're gripped by various narratives about about what is moral and what is immoral they're not they're not exactly in the right state of mind to be making uh like strong and like sound and, and reasoned moral claims it's more like moral hysteria sort of captures them and then they end up playing into uh, the interests of some other faction that's not the current government. Yeah, well, there's... So are you talking about the people who get caught up in the crazy regime or the people who get caught up in, like, a craziness of resistance? A craziness of resistance. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. there's sort of, like, craziness on both sides, basically. Yeah, yeah. if you look at... So I, I think, um, for instance, like, Timothy Snyder, the, uh -huh. the historian, is probably done among the best jobs at, like, documenting the people who actually kind of resisted the Nazis or, or kind of like mm -hmm. protected Jews, you know, and he explains how kind of, how kind of extremely rare that was. It yeah. took, a, it took this combination of either like almost like, um, especially rare morality or a combination or some kind of other identity, um, uh, construct that was going on where where someone already felt part of like a persecuted minority mm -hmm. themselves and then was kind of right. um you know had had already kind of thought through the the act of moral resistance against the state because of that and and it's 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 actually extremely like we have these hollywood ideas of uh of schindler's list yeah, yeah. Or, or something where we think that oh like half you know it, it almost in, implicitly like well like half the germans were were trying to rescue jews or like half the people right. in poland or whatever and that's very far from like the reality you know yeah. you had to be someone that was not only basically risking your own life um but but kind of acting against every like rational economic and and kind of uh survival incentive to, to, to do that and that's not and that, that's maybe to say that those people really are 
you know, uh, saintly and, and kind of yeah. righteous in, in a almost superhuman way. But that, but that's, it's, it's very hard to kind of expect a society to function in which yeah. everyone operates like that. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, that's why it's important to have institutions and states yeah, and things I mean, that like, th- work is, properly. Right? This is the kind of thing that like, like thinking through the contradictions in, in these kinds of thought experiments of like, what would you have this person do or whatever? Um, it, like for me at least, it kind of exposes a, a, an almost incoherence in the usual concept of moral judgment. Um, and, and like, like I, so I, just, I find it an interesting question. That's why I've like kind of steered this towards that, like of, of like how do we think about moral judgment in the area of politics? Um, and I think it's actually really a hard question. Let's think about the fact that um, in Hilger's case, he's in the Soviet Union, meaning that uh, resistance on his part would have essentially probably have taken the form of becoming an agent of the Soviet Union. The reason this would have been ironic is, of course, as the piece mentions, that the reason he comes to the United States later on is precisely to start the Cold War propaganda process against the Soviet Union and take, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the article mentions during the war, Stalin was Uncle Joe, this, you know, friendly guy who was yeah, an ally. Yeah. And then part of Hilger's job is to help with the process where he is now being recast and he's a tyrant and he's Stalin and he's, you know, this brutal, ruthless dictator. And so the question this public question of who is perceived as the power that you cannot cooperate with is itself the result of these interests working in the background. And um, I think, as Jonah mentioned, whenever you're resisting one power, that means you are either directly or indirectly collaborating with a different power. And I think it's extremely clear in this scenario. Regarding Uncle Joe, I always like to think of it as though as though there's this massive sort of like machine in some uh, dark basement of, of the U.S. government somewhere called the Moral Machine, which is some <laughs> kind of fusion of, of U.S. government officials and and uh, the media. And, you know, they'll get a slip of paper coming down some chute and it says like, OK, we're friends with Joseph Stalin now. Right, very and 1984. They, right, right, right. And, they, and it's like, OK, oh, man. All right. How are we going to do this one? All right. OK. And then they feed the piece of paper through the machine and it, it grinds a little bit and then it keeps going and it produces some from some smoke and some steam. And then and then about six months later, every, every everyone in public is like. Yeah, you know, he's not that bad of a guy. Uncle Joe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, that's sort of, you know, too literalistic, right? But it's an interesting sort of like description of, of how it how it works without it being so concrete, which is that there yeah. that there is a moral machine, there are priorities, and uh, the, the public story of something's morality matters uh so much more yeah, than, and it, than and it the kind actual of, the public story is just being like kind of you know often like cooked up as a result of these institutional interests it's just that's one right of the really that's interesting right. things yeah, yeah. we get into in the piece yeah, yeah um it's like kind of notable just on the 1984 angle that that uh what is it night is it 1948 that um orwell published uh 1984 or is it the 50s I don't know the exact. It's right around that time. Yeah, it's around then. Yeah. Anyway, so that that's a notable thing. But yeah, like let's 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 bring it. uh, Published nineteen forty nine. Okay, forty nine. So like, you know, now we've we've brought Hilger over to the United States. Let's talk a little bit about his work with the United States in 
shaping those narratives and shaping how we dealt with the Soviet Union, et cetera? Like, what did those things look like? Yeah, so um, he had all of this knowledge on the Soviet Union, and um, especially kind of during the wartime period, um, again, one, again, he had a lot of disagreements with, um, with Hitler and Ribbentrop, and, mm-hmm. and I think, I mean... I don't know that it was exactly from a moral position, but he clearly saw that uh, he what he believed were German like state interests were not being served. I mean, right. like in hindsight and in retrospect, and like knowing what we know about like Hitler and his ideology, it seems kind of like pretty clear that uh, <laughs> he was kind of in, into this like racial. Mm-hmm. project and this like Nazi ideology project that like to the detriment to the of detriment German of interests. like the German geopolitics which yeah. so but I think something like that was kind of and, and this is where Hillier is kind of like naive it's like he didn't like almost realize that like that the state was not actually acting in in its own interest anymore or because it had been taken over by this ideology um but but suffice it to say that he had a lot of um, a lot of thinking about what had gone on on the Eastern Front, especially mm-hmm. um, uh, people like um, General um, Vlasov, who uh, um, was a defector from the Soviet Union, um, and uh, he had been capped to, to Germany. Or yes, he had been. He had basically. Um, defected to Germany, and then um, and uh, people like Hilger had been agitating to kind of make, have the Germans make much more use of like these defector forces, right. um, and also to do kind of psychological operations um, in um, in in um, the Soviet Union that kind of would have like or in the Eastern um, Eastern Europe as well that would have kind of turned. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sentiment against um, against Stalin, um, and he thought that um, th- that would have kind of increased Germany's chances on the in the war on the Eastern Front. But of course, like the Nazi ideological project, not only was kind of the the you know the dominant um, the kind of the dominant goal of their war effort but it was also to kind of to the detriment of what what may have actually been able to help them militarily right so um um hilger um describes at one at one point how the basically they were getting reports back from the from the front lines um when they were when they invaded ukraine um about how the German tanks were met with like flowers and mm. and um, and like and and bread, right? Like the the Ukrainian children were so happy; they felt like they were being liberated. But but any of that goodwill was like immediately um, squandered by the fact yeah. that like the SS took over a lot of the the occupation efforts, and in the the mind of like Nazi racial ideology the Slavic um, people were were basically considered um, like undermenschen in the same yeah. sense that, but th- that this Jews is... were, right? So they so they this kind of racial ideology um, had had in a lot of ways like inhibited 
any any kind of successful politics that may have happened. Yeah, this is really interesting. It comes back to I think um, in Republic by Plato, there's like discussion obviously of the nature of justice, right? Like what is this justice thing? Um, and one of the key features that I think uh, Socrates puts forth for 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 what justice is is that justice is effective. Like, justice is not something that shoots itself in the foot and loses. And in fact, injustice is something that shoots itself in the foot. And so it's this really interesting idea that, like, evil is actually not an effective strategy. Um, and, and, or, like, injustice is not an effective strategy. Like, if you can't, um, if you're not, like, treating your comrades well or treating your allies well or treating potential friends well, then you're not going to be able to succeed. Um... And, and he gives the example of like a ba band of thieves right? right and like among the thieves like if they are perfectly unjust they're not going to be able to cooperate right so like even among the thieves they need some level of justice like this idea of justice among thieves to get them to even cooperate enough to steal other people's stuff um and, and i think that's like an interesting notion to to deploy here and sort of like how we're thinking about uh and since we've gotten into like the moral discussion just like bring in some of these greeks and how they thought about it it's like the yeah, I just think it's this really important notion that like the doing something that is morally bad is is like very often just ineffective and like that, that these things mm -hmm. are they coincide uh, actually quite a bit. There's a part of this that I like to bring up, which in the article it was kind of discussed at the very end, and that's uh, Hilger's role uh, under Adenauer in West Germany. Um, after the war, and specifically in the 50s. And the, the line for me that I find and en encapsulates what was going on there most perfectly, because let's remember here, uh, Hilger had been associated with the Third Reich, West Germany had been built on this idea of denazification, um, new institutions were being built, and then after Hilger's rehabilitation in the United States, he is sent to Germany. And uh, you mentioned here, Hilger was appointed uh, Botschaftsrat, that is a counselor in the foreign office, the exact same position in the same office where he had worked under Ribbentrop. Uh, not only that, he's promised a full pension for the entire period from 1923 to his future retirement. And you sort of quote uh, Nicholas Popa here, the Russian linguist, um, and he credits Hilger for extensive support of Adonawa. So I'd like to hear a bit about how Hilger was able to operate in this new West German regime, given his past. Uh, was this only because the U.S. greased the wheels, so to speak, or was the German establishment itself essentially glad to have him back? Yeah, so um, I have to confess that this is not an, a, a part of Hilger's life that I'm especially well versed in. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I kind of know the general outlines and I know how he returned, um, to Germany, um, to West Germany in this case. What I would say is, um, is, but, well, I think, so, so I've had, we, I've chosen to focus on Hilger, but he's just one of kind of a panoply of German diplomatic figures that, okay. that kind of figures in this in this trans war period he's probably the most interesting because of the amount of like time that he spends in the u.s and everything but he's just one of a number of kind of former third reich german diplomats that are like that are rehabilitated and kind of mm -hmm. end up running the show in the in the adenauer foreign office and in fact that 
factors into the the critiques that are um, that are that are kind of levied against the West German establishment into the 60s mm-hmm. um, is that basically they're all kind of like closet Nazis and that um, and that they're just you know they're just continuing to do in Vietnam what they were doing to the Jews like you get a lot of these type mm-hmm. of narratives um, in the in the 60s in the in the West German context like the student movements and everything mm-hmm. and so in some sense there's truth to it and in, in, in the sense that um, you know a lot of there was actually this this degree of continuity um, but um, I, again I'm not an expert on that I think there's been some some uh, uh, Germany's uh, done some of its own kind of navel gazing, and um, there's been a bunch of like federal um, inquiries into the the history of their own um, kind of like foreign office and agencies. The one um, on the the foreign office is called uh, um, the foreign office in the past, and it's kind of it's like this. Um, I think it's like a 900 page report on kind of the Nazi connections to the to the foreign office both um, in the Third Reich and then um, after. Well, it's kind of funny because if one looks at the geopolitics of West versus East Germany and the rhetoric that was used in that period, one of the major talking points of the East German regime, which is the communist regime, which is Soviet-backed, had consistently been, they had this national myth that, you know, their state was run by people and most of the people in East Germany had never been Nazis, they had been part of the resistance, uh, they had always been more loyal to the communists, and so they kind of retconned that history. But in their relation to West Germany, they would always take this line that, in fact, the Allies had just kept the Nazis in power, that in some sense the uh, the, the industrialists and the even the, the state apparatus itself, uh, it was just the same people in power. In fact, when the wall was first built, the, the name given to it by the East Germans was the anti-fascist protection rampart. And so you can see that, actually, this is quite an important part of... Um, how they justify themselves and the measures they took. The irony, of course, in this article is that, in fact, we see um, some of this actually happening, which would have made it quite difficult, I would think, for Adenauer and for the West German regime to counter that propaganda from the DDR. Um, so it's sort of an irony there uh, for anyone who has studied German history uh, in the second half of the 20th century. Uh, yeah, um, I mean, for them, it's like it's it's much more real. This kind of left wing um, criticism that's volleyed at basically anyone on the right as being Nazis. I mean, in some cases, it happens to be true when you're in, <laughs> you know, post war West Germany. It's basically like um, like you're saying, um, a lot of the uh, industrial apparatus, the state. You know, clearly, whole parts, whole government departments were kind of run by the same people before forty-five as after. Hmm. So, on the uh, theme of rebuilding here, I think this might be a good place for us to transition to discussing uh, some of the other articles that we had um, scheduled for this week. And uh, in this case, I think a good one to start with would be Stephen Borthwick's piece. Uh, this one was titled Rebuilding the Middle East, Christians, Shiites, and Secularists Join Forces. 
And uh, just to quickly go over the article, um, this piece looks at alliances that have been built on the ground in several countries, uh, mostly in Lebanon, Syria, and Iraq, um, by Christians in the Middle East who are a minority in most countries who have been uh, quite adversely affected by U.S. foreign policy in the region. Um, quite often, uh, Saddam's regime, um, but also the Assad government, uh, had worked with them to varying extents. And when destabilization occurred, and specifically in Iraq when the overthrow of the Saddam government occurred, they began undergoing persecution. And so this piece looks at how Christians have been working with different groups um, in order to create stability. And now going forward, how the next generation of Middle Eastern politics is going to be shaped by these coalitions. Um, specifically, uh, what this piece focuses on is the fact that these coalitions are generally with groups that are hostile um, to the United States uh, and also to Israel. Um, and uh, in, in this case, uh, Shia communities and organizations such as Hezbollah and Iranian-backed militias have tried quite hard to reach out to Christians because um, it allows uh, these groups to gain an ally, but it also lets them seem less sectarian. Um, they've been able to build brands for themselves as protecting, you know, all the communities in the areas that they control, which means that those who are under persecution from ISIS and from similar groups have a lot of incentive to cooperate with them. And you can especially see the results of this in Lebanon. The piece discusses how um, Hezbollah, which is a, a Shia um, Islamist organization that's known for being quite anti-Zionist, that the U.S. generally is condemned. I think they are still uh, considered a terrorist organization by the U.S. Um, and they, in fact, had conflict with the Christians in Lebanon um, some decades back. But now in this sort of new era where they've taken a strong stance, they fought um, ISIS alongside the Assad government, Christians in Lebanon have increasingly had this sense that it is, at least in part because of Hezbollah, that uh, Lebanon has been kept safe from organizations such as ISIS who would, you know, at the hands of which they would suffer extreme persecution. Um, and the theme of rebuilding here is, I think, good to highlight on, because as mentioned earlier, uh, in the case of Iraq, a just total uh, deconstruction of the state was undertaken. Um, obviously, uh, in, in Syria and in Lebanon, the, the states in those territories are still standing, uh, but particularly in Syria, regions of the country were under ISIS control for several years. Uh, there was instability in other regions. There's been immense population displacement. And in in this case, uh, coalitions that are forming for that process of rebuilding are ones where the U.S. now has to decide if it's going to play the game of realpolitik. Is it willing to work with people, um, which it has historically opposed, for the sake of stability and peace? Um, or will it take a harder approach 
Um, and examples are given in the piece. For example, there is the famous incident with Ted Cruz where he was speaking to a group of Middle Eastern Christians and made a statement along the lines that if they would not support Israel, he would not support them. Uh, the problem, of course, with the statement is that, in fact, most Middle Eastern Christians do not support Israel because um, there, there's a history of persecution there as well. Um, and and within the countries in which they live, countries such as Lebanon, uh, Christians in those countries are, uh, in a sense, patriotic. They are loyal to their country when conflicts do break out with Israel. And so Ted Cruz sort of displayed in this incident that a hardline approach toward these coalitions would lose groups that might even otherwise be willing to work with the United States. So Matt, I think it would be interesting to go to you and maybe hear some of your thoughts on um, in in this rebuilding process in the Middle East, what do you think are some of the lessons to be learned here about how to do that? Wow, the easy question. <laughs> of um, course. I mean, one of the things that strikes me about this piece and also about the, kind of the, the issues it tackles is um, is the role of like Russian geopolitics um, and how they kind of use the Orthodox Church in a lot of ways um, as kind of an, an almost like an arm of the state. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I think the guy's name is Kirill, the the patriarch. Yeah, patriarch yeah, Kirill of Moscow. I mean, yeah, uh, who has his own kind of KGB past? It, you know, he right. Um, as basically any uh, senior figure um, in the Orthodox Church under the Soviet Union um, that that was allowed to like leave the country would have um, would have in that case. So it's kind of funny to me that like the president of Russia today and the um, the head of the Orthodox Church both are like these KGB guys who like grew up under the very like notionally atheistic Soviet system, and right. now they're kind of using this um, as kind of a, geo a geopolitical play um, um, in the Middle East. So, so that's what strikes me there. Um, it strikes me as another situation where if the U.S. was actually kind of committed to um, rebuilding institutions and working with. Um, working with people kind of kind of meeting them where they are and not kind of like necessarily expecting them to already kind of have like a particular worldview or a particular ideology that it would be a lot easier to like come to a kind of a kind of a kind of workable modus vivendi where there could be an end of hostilities clearly like things would require like decades of actual kind of economic reform and growth to actually get into a place where they were like very successful countries but but there's a difference between like being successful kind of like like uh you know prosperous people and and just kind of having like a basic survival end of hostilities and i think in a lot of these conversations whether it's the balkans or you know the israeli palestinian conflict or um um, or, or any of these other kind of intractable um, diplomatic issues, we often are kind of 
I think setting our, our sights too high on what we need to actually just have an end to, to kind mm-hmm. of hostilities at a basic level. What this also brings up interestingly too is that uh, a true hegemon does have the ability to kind of seamlessly demand uh, that that its opponents fully adopt its worldview as a prerequisite for coming to the table for any negotiations. And the very fact that the theme of, of sort of dropping that requirement is starting to, to rise recently in, in more realist foreign policy circles kind of indicates to me that 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 we're already that the U.S. has already lost on some level because uh, if it still had yeah, the it power lost, to lost be hegemonic status, it lost I mean, it, right. like you have to be pretty hegemonic to be like, all right, you can come to the table, but you have to give up like everything. Right. Like, and, every, and the fact that the U S like, keeps being intense, the fact yeah. that the U S keeps being outmaneuvered while simultaneously, you know, keeping this as a requirement of its foreign policy shows that sort of like, well, the thing's the, stale. Yeah, the institutions mm-hmm. haven't quite yeah. caught up to the this right. reality. The reality, yeah. Of, yeah, and this this gets back to like what we were talking about in yeah. in the Hilger piece of like, okay, so like, you know, Hilger there, there was Kennedy, a time when the U.S. Hilger, could Hilger, make yeah, these Hilger and Kennedy and these guys they built they yeah. built institutions or like they were involved in institutions that were actually the institution was driving things and actually looking at the strategic fundamentals, and then the ideology was kind of following that. And one of the big themes of the piece is. That over time, as those institutions have decayed and have kind of failed the succession problem for a variety of reasons, um, the, inst- the, the ideology now is almost the thing that's driving because the right. people coming in now, the only thing they've ever heard of is the public story, right? And so that, like, the, the, the system's kind of like getting high on its own supply in a way. Right, and, and in this context of of kind of the hegemon and how much how much how many degrees of freedom because it it all is basically relative, right? You don't, mm. there's never like an absolute you know kind of kind of power dynamic. Yeah. it's all about kind of your willingness to to kind of to mm-hmm. be to kind of put put yourself out there and and kind of put in and kind of put capabilities into action. And and I think let's take three examples that are kind of dealt with. Uh, to various extents um, by these pieces. We have, like, in the one case, the kind of post-war um, international order and all that entails and kind of the ability to kind of dictate terms to, like, Ger- like Germany and Japan after the end of the war. Mm. Um, in another case, maybe let's look at, like, um, let's say, like, the Camp David Accords mm. um, under President Carter in the 1970s, and, and you probably you probably have there like an, still a very hegemonic position. Can, can you go over what that was about? Yeah, so um, the idea being, um, I guess, an attempt at um, at at kind of bringing some uh, some diplomatic uh, resolution to disputes between Arabs and, and Israelis, okay, um, yeah. um, and then and then uh, and then in the 90s we had. Uh, the Dayton, the, the Dayton Accords mm-hmm. in, in, yeah, in, in, the Balkans. in the Balkans. And so I think in each one of those cases, uh, they're not kind of perfectly comparable, but you have less and less of that kind of ability to dictate terms. And I think you see in what results from, from each of those kind of settlements, let's call them, that uh, you actually have to have kind of these greater and greater degrees of like complexity in the political arrangements that follow because you have less of a, a kind of hegemonic ability to actually kind of say like actually yeah. this is how it's going to go and and, and it's going to be clean cut and, and 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 so at the same time 
you know, your uh, capabilities are declining. Right. You, well, or at least, yeah, at least your power. So I don't know that it's necessarily the capabilities. Um, but I mean like the institutional capabilities to like sure. to come up with yeah. and deal with that complexity that, that's necessary. Like it's, yeah, it's, it's notable that like, you know, post-war reconstruction in Germany and Japan, it's like we conquered them at the height of our power. Right. And like, so we're very much able to dictate. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas like nowadays, like, you know, we're not like rolling into Europe and, and conquering the Balkans at the height of our power and like dictating what's going to happen. It's like it's almost. And, and there's also the thing that has to be brought up, which is that in the Middle East, in all, in all these situations, as a even if you have superpower status, you have to be able to communicate and the people you're trying to work with have to have a certain level of trust that you actually understand the local situation. I think the most important point in a way that the rebuilding the Middle East piece takes up um, is the notion that the Western governing class and particularly the media class uh, is tremendously illiterate when it comes to questions of religion and culture um, in the way that they're actually experienced outside of the West, whereas Russia, um, so there is on the one hand this historic relationship that exists between the Middle East Christians and Russia that uh, go, goes back to the imperial era, and that's discussed somewhat in the piece. Um, one of the major statesmen, a number of major statesmen, in fact, in the end of the imperial period had relationships with um an organization that was trying to elevate Russia's status in the Middle East on religious grounds, giving it this role of a Christian protector. So the group is called the Imperial Orthodox Palestine Society, and it still operates today. Uh, Putin gave its formal recognition in 2012 for its work. Uh, they carry out dinners in places like the UK. And so this is a theme that has existed in the Russian state through, continuously through several markedly different regimes. Um, and you could probably argue that Russia's imperial history gives it a certain understanding of how a great diversity of ethnicities and religions live side by side in the more Eurasian context, um, and that this translates better to understanding the Middle Eastern situation than does the Western view in which ethnicity or religion, these are kind of considered, uh, you know, they're ideally supposed to be secondary characteristics to your status as mm -hmm. a citizen in a civic mm -hmm. state. And particularly yeah, like, in the religious context, right, religion, well, that's a belief. It's a belief and it's supposed to be private because the modern West no longer thinks of religion as being actually a communal thing with a cultural aspect that you can't just sort of exit by virtue of, say, no longer going to church. Um, and, you know, we, we see in the Hilger piece, there seems to be a very strong common understanding about the, what the situation is and what the stakes are, whereas in the Middle East, uh, this is just not the case. Yeah, I mean, like to, to expand on your point of like how the West sees sort of religion and, and ethnicity and culture and so on, like um, to kind of like the modern mainstream those things are just like different flavors of liberalism like they're they're like different kind of colors that you can slap on the the same underlying thing like oh yeah everyone's kind of the same everyone has the same underlying interests people just want to be citizens in a democracy uh and and like you know people have their their little cultural things occasionally some some like 
fundamentalists get in charge and like turn it into something more than that but that's actually an aberration and like actually they're all just you know people waiting to become liberals uh with like of different flavors yeah yeah well and you can see this most especially in in the rhetoric of um you know extremist versus moderate uh islam or any other religion you know the idea being that in its true form these religions will actually turn you into a good liberal and it's only their excess or their mutation that makes you deviate from that worldview and of course this is ridiculous i mean uh, i believe erdogan actually made a statement in a speech uh, it might be a couple years ago now openly rejecting um, I don't remember his exact phrase, but essentially rejecting the idea that there was a moderate and an extreme Islam. Now, of course, he has his own political reasons for doing that, but this is in fact more, uh, th- this understands better the way that religion is actually viewed outside of the West, and that's why it was yeah. a useful political statement to make. Yeah, well, I, I think... Go on, Matt. Um, it, it kind of, it's, it's to ignore the whole history of, of how these kind of religious systems factor in and can kind of compare it to to mm-hmm. state authority and and how it's actually kind of an aberration historically that in the west we developed the separation of church and state right I mean, again um yeah so so that like it has to do with the history of kind of the fall of the roman empire and the and medieval kind of feudal power structures being very decentralized compared to the kind of but but still kind of falling under the like umbrella of the the, the Roman church. you know Catholic uh, Church, which had uh, very weak like uh, local political authority, but was able to kind of be this mm-hmm. this um, this kind of great bestower of of kind of um, legitimacy, uh, kind of like legitimacy, right? And so, I think uh, we we have a very uh, a very contingent set of like institutions and history in the in the Western. Um, Western Europe and in kind of in the, you know, mm-hmm. by extension in North America, um, that that kind of uh, has lived through this this long history of having separation of church and state. So it's easy for us to think that, um, you know, this is somehow the way that the world works. You know, yeah, yeah, but yeah, I think, for instance, not... in the way that you saw how much of a disaster kind of trying to do nation building in in, in Iraq was, and this kind mm-hmm. of this kind of very uh, misguided assumption that somehow there a bunch of Iraqis were just kind of like liberal Westerners just like waiting to be (laughs) waiting for the Americans to topple their government I mean uh you know that underscores to me just how how kind of fragile and how kind of contingent a lot of these uh these systems are and and how um you know uh we we should probably try to re- rebuild and, and to build successful institutions and, and, and structures that will um, allow people to have you know peace and security and and prosperity but but to to kind of demand a kind of ideological um, obedience or something like that is is to actually kind of go against uh, our practical goals yeah well i mean it's like it is practical to demand ideological obedience but like y- y- you have to be mohammed basically like y- you have to be like rolling in with a yeah, big army not if and, you're like, george convert w. people by the sword right, right. Like, yeah like yeah. george bush can't do it because they like they're not actually thinking clearly about what they're trying to do right they're like oh yeah these people they want 
what we offer. They're just like us, except like they happen to have a dictatorship. So we just go in and topple the dictator and everything will be fine. <laughs> but you have to you have to think more like, you know, early Islam where it's like you roll in and, and you say, look, you're you're now with us. And if you don't like that, uh, well, too bad. Now, now you're an apostate and, and that's off with your head or whatever. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's slightly not, not more... Not to caricature them, but like it's they, slightly they were more quite compli- forceful in that. Yeah, it's slightly more complicated than that. But then we would have to get into a big discussion about insurgency and counterinsurgency and... And that could be a discussion for another podcast. I'm actually going to probably write something about counterinsurgency in a bit yeah. uh, for Palladium. But, but speaking, yeah, and, and speaking of Islam in this context, like um, that Islamic uh, publication, Traversing Tradition, had a, an interesting article on how like the U.S. imperial um, machine is kind of trying to like transmute uh, Islam into like this the, that's like right. flavor of liberalism yeah, yeah. and you can and, see this in all in, in a lot of the the new grant funded uh like islamic studies programs at right, various yeah. uh top universities and it's very clear that you know those efforts are are an attempt to to put islam through the the boston machine the boston yeah. machine of liberalism yeah the machine that turns christianity into liberalism and where it's like turns, well that, that turns religion into a culture right which is an entirely yeah, yeah, exactly. different thing i think the best way to think about the process of what we could call the ideological westernization of islam uh is that what it tries to do right because the 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 issues of confrontation that come up, like the hijab, for example, they can very easily be portrayed as cultural problems, right? And as, you know, say, saying that hijab, uh, you know, the the act of a woman covering herself, well, this is a cultural difference, but we shouldn't assume that that means that there are differences of belief here in terms of fundamental values. Now, it makes sense to say that in a way, because if you have... Uh, a conflict breaking out you, you you want to find some way to resolve that and to promote goodwill but in fact the the ultimate result of that um for anyone with religious belief is that your system of belief is now reduced to a set of practices that don't necessarily correlate with any number of ideas you know and so the idea ends up being that you can engage in certain cultural practices like like maybe you do uh, wear hijab or, you know, may, maybe even engage in prayer and, and things like this. But in fact, your fundamental belief system is essentially that of a Western, secular, Harvard-trained liberal. And the, the in the case of the Traversing Tradition series, um, that series, I think, quite accurately analyzed that as a threat from a religious perspective to Islam, um, and because it's something that has actually occurred before. So if you look at the Catholic Church in the United States, when it first arrives, it's quite marginalized. It's seen as a threat. Uh, now, of course, there's eminent Catholic universities. Uh, bishops in the United States are invited to to the White House. Uh, it's quite socially prominent. But in fact, the actual life of most Catholics in that country uh, is not markedly different from that of anyone else, despite the fact that in name there are supposed to be these distinguishing religious beliefs which are quite countercultural. Uh, and, and so th- this is why the religious literacy aspect is important, because um, 
we should be able to tell that as this process of trying to culturize, let's say, Islam continues, there is going to be naturally a response to that which opposes that process because it accurately understands Islam as as a religion and specifically as an Abrahamic religion that has universal claims, that has, you know, certain sets of doctrine that can't just be waved aside. Um, if one understands religion properly, there are things that you can predict that you simply can't predict if you actually fall for the um, the illusion, so to speak, that actually this is just a culture and we don't need to assume anything. Um, yeah, well, this is this is um, like this kind of comes back to Palladium's mission of of kind of popping ourselves out of the the Western liberal paradigm to be able to understand things from these other perspectives, so that we actually can engage with them and learn from them, and and like strategize about them more effectively. And, and so, two of the reasons why I actually really like this article is it's is because it's it's baffling to two uh, sort of like factions in the U.S. that have an interesting amount of power. The first would be the evangelical uh, Protestants who um, sort of have an, a bit of an uncritical amount of, of support for Israel for various eschatological uh, reasons and, and so exert some amount of domestic political influence in that direction. Um, and for them, the idea that Middle Eastern Christians would be opposed to their vision for the Middle East is kind of baffling, right? They, yeah. they don't really understand it. And clearly well, neither did Ted Cruz, right? It's not, I'm not just talking about, I, I'm not making a caricature of, of some like dumb prot in some like, some Pentecostal church somewhere, right? Like this is, this is all the way up and down. I mean, if your, if your vision for the Middle East <laughs> is the Jews better control Israel so that we can have the imminent rapture occur. <laughs> right. Like, yes, that could... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That could lead to some, you know... Difficult. Political problems. But then there's, you know, I'm not letting... There's also, the, the of course, the other side of, of sort of higher status Western liberals who... Uh, maybe this didn't used to be the case, but it is the case now where um, among that group, religious literacy is, is incredibly low. And so you always see these various cases of, of articles kind of making fun of, of religious reporters at places like the Washington Post or the New York Times because they routinely flub the most basic mm -hmm. elements of, of describing religions, especially Christianity. And of course, part of, part of the reason for that is is the domestic conflict between those two groups and yeah. and one deciding uh, not to really pay attention to or learn anything about the other. Actually, I mean, they both do this. Uh, and of course, that's one of the reasons driving um, the lack of religious literacy there. And so for them, you know, this, you know, they would have a more difficult time understanding uh, I mean, before reading this article, understanding the nuances of the situation in the Middle East, because you do have to understand uh, the intricate details of religious politics to, to get it. Mm -hmm. Well, and I yeah, think I one mean, of the, the main problems... Hold on, in hold on Ash. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I agree. And I think one of the things that's interesting to me is um, I think, I think uh, we don't even well understand kind of how religious needs like function right. in in general right so i think in the american context today these ideologies often function a lot like religions do in kind yeah. of more traditional societies um but we don't we treat them as if 
we treat the ideologies as if they're politics and we treat religion as if it's culture or, or kind of social. Right. So, so there's, there's like, um, there's, there's, I think a very much like an epistemological or analytical problem in that I don't think we actually like understand a lot of the, the phenomena. Yeah, well, these things are kind are. of like outside of the liberal ontology, right? Like in the liberal ontology, well, you have the free individual who has like private desires. I don't know that it's that just even liberal, through. it's just kind of the, the, like the culture that we're living in right now. Which yeah, is liberalism. But, right, but, but I mean, in the sense that like, you know, uh, speaking, you know, as a, as a, as a <laughs> Catholic from Boston, right? So, like, you know, to, to the points that were brought up earlier, right? Like, I, I don't, I don't know that a lot of, um, I think a lot of, a lot of the way that like Catholicism functions in American society is not the way that a traditional religion mm -hmm. would. And, and that a lot of these, the actual religious needs are filled by, um, are, are filled by ideology and they're filled by kind of other, other right. philosophies that people have. They're filled by other kind of, or, or in some cases they're just left to kind of unanswered, right? And and so it creates kind of some mm -hmm. some kind of problems. I want to talk about one one thing for a second, and it's this hilarious, really funny part of American society, where they have this strange process of of integrating weird, bizarre groups, whether they're uh, religious or sort of like fetish based or or based on some kind of weird interest not totally accepted by society at least yet. It's kind of like. You know, I'm I'm an American too. I'm just like you. I, I like you know baseball games and like eating hot dogs and like the flag and stuff. I just do X also. Right. Right. And it's and it's this very kind of like Reddit tier approach to being into to having your kind Looks of like we just lost the Reddit audience. Uh, oops, oops. <laughs> but that's the story of American Catholics. I mean, in a it lot is. of no, ways, no, no, it's it like, is. It it's is. like we're just like the the wasps, except yes. we just have this like weird thing that we like <laughs> just, also just pray to the Pope. You know, we we believe in the Pope, and then they're like, you know. I mean, in the old days, that was like, you know, the Pope, you know, was, was, was basically power, like hung in, hanged in effigy, you know, <laughs> on Boston Common, you know, back right, under right. the, you know, the Well, it's the, like, the almost, days. almost it's like the, the Church way... of Satan does this too on yeah, Twitter, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. They're like... But they're ridiculous. You know, yeah, I, I know, I know. But, but it's, it's, they're just so emblematic of, uh, you know, and this process to some extent has to occur in all societies, right? But yeah. it's just funny the particular American way of going about it. Yeah, well, well, in I, the I Catholic think... case, I think you've seen the the end of that arc, which is just that the integration becomes finalized with uh, essentially religious apostasy. So ex-Catholics are one of the right. largest, you know, denominations in in the U.S. and uh, maybe Catholics kind of being one of the first major non-Protestant religions in America couldn't have seen this coming, but new religious communities, such as uh, Muslims or other communities, can look back and see how this retrospectively played out. And so the context there is very different. Um, of course, Catholics as well, you know, modern Catholics have, are, are, have very different views on questions of secularism than maybe they did in the 1960s or the 1920s, uh, because you have to essentially uh, update as a community if you have this interest in remaining distinct and carrying on to future generations, where if you see that you're essentially getting so assimilated that you cease to exist, then in fact now you have to start pursuing your distinctiveness. Yeah, well, right. there's some important there's some important points to make here on, on that. So, like, first of all, like with respect to the the thing being like 
its distinctiveness dissolved over time. Like Islam right now looks like very, very foreign to America. But I think over time, like as that community grows and, you know, as, as the program of westernization of Islam continues, uh, they're going to come end up being more like the Catholics and, then you know, eventually uh, apostatize and everything. A lot, um, a lot of that foreignness is political as yeah, well. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and then a point I wanted to make is just how much the the whole ontology of like the idea of a religion, the way we think of a religion these days, is is just like the it's a very contingent thing on on the shape of our current sort of um, order of society. It's like like the the thing that like is sort of more fundamentally universal is that there like a society has an order to it. It has like a moral order. It has an institutional order. It has like how people think about the thing or the culture and all these all these aspects. Um, and y- you get these like remnants of different orders, right? And like like what we think of as religions, like Catholicism was like a previous order that existed, or Protestantism was like a previous order that existed, right? Um, and Islam is this alternate order right like from kind of almost another civilization and like likewise with a bunch of these things they're they're sort of these like remnants of a different civilizational order um and and you get kind of like like which piece of those things survives into like being able to like somewhat coexist with the the currently dominant order is is like entirely contingent on the nature of of the currently dominant thing so like the fact that it's like the cultural tropes or, or whatever, or like this idea of, of personal belief or something like basically like religion looks like personal belief to us because that's kind of like the only thing that you're allowed to do differently in a way, except, except that like, you know, over time that dissolves because you, the, the institutions are, are dissolved. Um, yeah, but, but like it, it puts it, like a point I want to make, like especially with respect to like um, Islam and, and Catholics in the West, is it puts like if those communities are trying to actually like remain, keep their distinctiveness and keep the order that they're actually dedicated to and stay dedicated to that, that puts them in a in a position of not just like oh we're trying to maintain our little religious community. It's like it's actually a position of total rebellion, like because they're supporting a an entirely different order uh against against the order that currently exists and i'm not saying like oh you know this is bad or like the system should treat them like that i'm just saying that like for them to actually win they have to succeed at at this like uh this much more total game than than i think anyone is aware of like the, the these the, the kind of mainstream thing do, will and does crush these these alternate things unless they become uh you know, like Judaism kind of like adapted to, to life in a host society or, uh, or like win somehow or, or escape somehow. Like it, it's not something that, um, like, like the thing that currently fills the niche that we call religion in the West is not like a, a universal contingent thing. It's yeah. like a remnant of this larger Yeah, I think thing. The, the most interesting thing there is just this understanding of like how, how boxed in kind of traditional religion is as a result of kind of the dominant, uh, you know, 
It's highly defanged. Yeah, the defa- yeah, yeah, well, it's it basically like the only the only uh, role that it can serve is to be this kind of almost like this 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 transferable like you could you substitutable like little personal box that like right. we all just kind of can you it's, could it's replace like it with veganism. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it that's like, right. That's you right. You can replace it with veganism, like whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. it is. Like what? Like, but I'm still an American. It's yeah. like what kind of music are you into? Right. right. It's yeah. like, that it's level like of because question. of how atomized we are. Like the only thing that religion can be is is a kind of like is a kind yeah. of you know your Subculture. own you know personal uh, kind of you know thing or what you're saying about you know this is the kind of like uh, you know fetish communities <laughs> or whatever like it, that that can also check this box you know um, that there's kind of there's no difference there's no mm-hmm. or in in, the, in in to your point Wolf there's no like there's no like larger sense of meaning or order mm-hmm. that that it's served yeah whereas those things like if you take those things seriously as they are sort of like as they were constructed. Uh, you realize that it actually or as they actually functioned in past. Yeah, you realize that it does have this nature of being a larger order. So for it to succeed as itself, it has to like you're talking about a much more existential game. This is not uh, this is not really about about liberalism. Um, I think liberalism is just a particular uh, method of integration yes. because the yeah. same dynamic. Of, of dominant and subordinate ideologies in competition in a given state is going to take place yes. under any political yeah, system. Yeah, like the Romans like did the same yeah, thing. Right. That right. was part of my like objection with necessarily like putting it all at the feet of liberalism. It's not. Because, no, yeah. it's just, li- it's, liberalism it's is the kind of, current thing. Yeah, it's yes. just like, it's, I think it's any time you have a kind of all-encompassing, you know, hegemonic ideolo- uh, ideology or like kind of Ideal, uh, ideological paradigm. Well, a hegemonic kind of, social order. Like, yeah, it, it kind it's of not demands, just an ideology. It kind of it's demands also that other subordination. Like, if, if, you're, if you're running a state and you have a particular state ideology and it's, and it's formal enough so everyone kind of understands it and acknowledges it, and for whatever reason you end up having a sizable population of a, of a very kind of like inimical religion in your society to the, the values of the dominant state, there, is, there has to be... The a, process a, of integration. A, a process of integration one way or another. Uh, yeah, like they, they have, to, there's going to be people saying like, oh, well, actually our thing, like, you know, it's actually just like an aspect of your thing or like a version right. of your thing. And well, so and this is why the religious literally th- literacy thing is important because it it's not as if every regime does this as effectively because, you know, we mentioned right. Russia and America earlier. You know, religious literacy, isn't ju- it's not just that there's some inherent cultural value in understanding this and maybe there is but on a a level beyond that um to actually deal you know interact correctly in a sense where you understand the way that the group or the community that you're interacting with thinks about themselves and you requires religious literacy and when that goes away i'd like to point out you know it's not as if the uh, the media in particular um doesn't somehow gain this more objective uh, lens when because of their low religious literacy, but actually that vacuum just ends up being filled with a bunch of tropes where they they take these kind of tropes that usually come from a very Western context and impose them over the world. There's an example here actually, which I thought described this rather well. Um, so this. Uh, right after the recent Sri Lanka bombings on um, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. against the Christian community there, um, 
there was a tweet from uh, from Andy West in this case, and I'll just read it very quick. There is no excuse. There is no excuse for terror attacks against innocent people. But as a journalist, I saw Western Christian missionaries unscrupulously converting Buddhist orphans for food and shelter after the Asian tsunami. Don't send your prayers. Hashtag Sri Lanka blasts. Now the thing about that is that you know if. This comes to a particular trope, which is that Christianity is an essentially, you know, Western, white, and so on sort of phenomenon, and Christians around the world are basically extensions of this. Now, this is obviously ridiculous because you know, Roman Catholics have existed in, in Sri Lanka and in India for hundreds of years, and there's churches in, in, uh, in India um, that go that are 2000 years old that go back to the very start of Christianity but because the media generally is not very interested in religion as a topic to deeply investigate they instead have to view the communities there through this lens of a western trope and it's you know that's factually wrong but it also makes their analysis extremely bad and because that analysis ultimately filters through to a way a lot of people make decisions um, this creates, in the long run, pretty extensive damage. I think this guy was momentarily possessed by the desire to be ratioed on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's that. And then second is uh, one of the ways that, that liberalism prevents radicalization in society is that they convince members of, re of religions that they haven't been owned by liberalism. Yeah. And that they 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 that they're still religious, right, 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 right. Yeah. Because once once people sort of understand the extent to which uh, their fundamental religious beliefs and practices have been put in a certain box that has like four corners, and there's no spilling out of that box, right? There's just no way. And so, the the process of radicalization, as far as I've seen it. Is when people it, realize that they're being put in the box. Is when people realize that they're in the box and they're like, oh my, yeah, yeah. like this is it. I, like, think you, I think you see the same thing with like Marxists, like like yeah. the, the degree of like Marxist LARPing and, and like uh, people dressing up like they're like 60s activists or whatever. Right. Um, and, hey man, it's an aesthetic. <laughs> and, and like... Uh, it's 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 less about or or they don't realize how much they've been recuperated by kind of like the dominant like ideological system or the yeah. dominant like like economic system. It, I think if a lot of I think if if like the kind of a lot of the like so called Marxists on college campuses like understood the the nature of the socio economic superstructures in which they find yeah, themselves yeah. they would be like way more cynical or or else i don't i don't know what would happen but they, they i think they just wouldn't um yeah well i, I think yeah it would it would way. look very different uh like you do see people who do take like do take their analysis seriously or do take their anti-capitalism seriously or whatever and they end up almost like ejected from the rest of the left because the rest of the left is like yeah. Like, like everything else. I mean, this fairly, is something that, fairly that, that well struck me with, like, the Zizek, like, Peterson debate, yeah. right? Is is the extent to which, like, Zizek has been basically, like, kind of kicked out of most of his, like... Yeah, right. Like, politically correct, like, left... Well, he's just... Yeah, yeah, I mean, he has because, enough... He has enough thumos to be willing to say whatever's on his mind. Like, he's just willing to say whatever yeah. at this point. Um, and so he's willing... 
he's willing to say certain things about Trump that get that get him in trouble. He's willing to say certain things about political but, correctness that get him in trouble. But I mean, he's like he's willing to call into effect, the, uh, call into uh, in, into people's minds the the fact that most of kind of the protest activity is just kind of filling yeah. this like outrage theater or whatever. It yeah, is. well, this it's comes kind of... back to the Davos article, right, where we talk about recuperation, about how these protest movements are like kind of. Mm-hmm. Or, or and and we're we're applying it now to religions. But Constantly these like protest drag, movements, drag yeah, they're back they're, into they're the brought into the system yeah. as like a fake version of themselves that placates the people that were previously uh, committed to and them, but not quite paying attention. Fundamental interests, and, but no longer threatens any fundamental interests. And like this is happening all the time. Yeah, and and so to to speak for a second to the strengths, right, of this like dominant ideology, dominant yeah. like structure. It's like say what you will about all of the ways in which it's kind of like flawed and problematic and create in like mm-hmm. the trajectory of it and and how it's maybe like led to the destruction of certain institutions and everything but it is extremely well adapted to kind of to kind of uh, this inclusive diversity whatever you want to call it this kind of that's that's actually in a lot of ways mm-hmm. uh, you know that it's the trope that like diversity is our strength but for liberalism that is actually the case like it's yeah, able it's to better able to hand, yes, it's better, it's able, better to able to handle to that handle situation than anything the, else the kind of minorities or, or, yeah. or, or fringe religions or whatever it is because yeah. of, because of its diversity well, yeah, and as, as the process of recuperation continues, um, once you start thinking of this phenomenon as recuperation, um, you can kind of start to predict the trajectory of the actual people involved in that intellectual process. So let me let me make a bold posit here uh, and test my own religious literacy um, to the extent that the current upcoming crop of uh, let let's call them liberal Muslim or reforming Muslim intellectuals are successful, within three generations from that point, they will cease to matter outside of their small localized institutions that they build for themselves. A lot like um, how the the currents of liberal Catholicism that had become popular in the 1960s no longer really exercise influence outside of the Catholic academic context. I mean, I don't really know anyone who's going to Davos or, uh, you know, interning for the United Nations, who cares much about what um, a think tank at a Catholic university thinks the Catholic Church has to offer to the liberal order, when two generations ago this could actually garner a, a lot of interest. Yeah. Oh, that, that's interesting. Yeah. Like, like they sort of, the first generation gets gets sort of like a seat at the table, but but subsequently, like, the the bargaining power just strictly decreases over time. Yeah, you definitely see that with the Catholic. I mean, there are these some of these like Catholic social thought initiatives at places like Georgetown, and right. I there I I don't I don't I can't speak maybe in general, but at the few events that I've attended, it seems like they're they're very much just like ta- kind of talking to themselves and kind of like uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know uh, it's very like. Uh, literally kind of preaching to the choir in, in a lot of ways. I mean, so potential threats are brought in under the process of recuperation and if they don't make... Some of them. Some of them are just out there crushed. Sure. Sure, of course, yeah. And and um, if there's no active process by that group of ensuring coordination and succession over the long term, then they lose any kind of ability to matter 
Yeah, well, and so then this, there's this no, comes need, to like there's no of, need for them to have a seat at the table. This comes that's to one. The, that's the issue. This comes to one of my big like strategic posits in terms of like the 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 strategy for one of for any of these groups is like basically um, succession of your civilization system in a countercultural position is impossible. It, it's like flat out impossible to run to do succession of a like to do a multi-generational um like embedded foreign civilization system unless you like you become something that fundamentally is like contained like judaism was in in the middle ages or uh or you just totally dissolve into the surrounding structure like those are the two options and neither of those mm -hmm. is is like any kind of actual uh, strategy where you win. Um, the the only strategies where you win are ones where you actually like capture the state because basically, basically like within any empire, you can only have one hegemon, and that hegemon is going to be pretty totalizing. Well, and this debate isn't um, quite live in religious communities. I mean, within the Catholic world, there was um, the right. release a few years ago of Roger yeah, the, the Benedict option. That which tried right, to right. Uh, theorize that maybe Christians could build this counterculture in the same way that the monastics, you know, uh, continued Christian life and culture and transmitted knowledge in the fall of the Western Roman Empire. The, the key difference, of course, being that the central power in that case, first of all, was, all, was Christian at that point, and second was in collapse. And so there was not this hostility that exists between those communities and a central uh, strident and liberal power that wants to sublimate them. Cru crucially, in that collapse, uh, like to use uh, Samos' uh, empire theory terminology here a little bit, the Roman Empire collapse, as far as I know, was like a decentralized collapse where like pieces were sort of falling off the system and like the center was getting weaker and weaker. Um, whereas, whereas you can also get a centralized collapse where like on the way down. The center maintains control and it's able to just smash anything that's trying to do anything different or like smash like so it's able to like it the thing is almost collapsing because the center is like cannibalizing it, uh the, the parts of the thing and and so like you know for Nazi anyone who, germany had elements of that, right okay right? sure um and, and so for like for anyone who might be like oh but we're we're sort of undergoing something of uh like a collapse as well i think ours is maybe more akin to at least within the west itself more akin to a centralized collapse i i mean i don't know i think one of the hard things is is to analyze these phenomena while you're inside of it especially yeah, it because is very of the, difficult. the time scale right and mm -hmm. so that's the that's that's where i'd where i'd kind of back up and look try to try to kind of be more at a kind of a pragmatic like ground level view of, of kind of the needs and the functions uh, mm -hmm. of kind of 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 how people are are satisfying their needs in society or or not or, and what role institutions are playing because i think uh you can only really tell the big overarching kind of trend line stories in yeah. retrospect and I it's mean, but, but in like, retrospect yeah like it's hard to tell whether but sometimes it's like hard to tell whether it's a 10 year or a 100 year yeah, you know, but, but I mean, like, cycle. let's look at over, like, the last hundred years. Do we have breakaway communities within within the, like, core West that are sustainable? No. no. It's like we had a bunch of counterculture in the 60s that tried it. We've had a bunch of religious things that tried it. None of them, were, none of them worked. 
right? And and so like that that convinces me like okay, we're not in the condition where you can do breakaway stuff, which means we're probably at this kind of like this more universal hegemonic like stage right. of the, of whatever the the overarching civilization is. Maybe the the, the best candidate for that might have been the Mormon Church. Yeah, but right. they did it in like the nineteenth century. Right, right, right. And it didn't and it didn't and work it didn't all the And it's like, ultimately they, they, kind of now they dropped polygamy from their right. official doctrine as part of a detente with the federal government, right? Yes. yes. And even now, to the extent that they do contradict um, you know, parts of the liberal worldview, while the Mormon church doesn't really try to openly make itself a political object. Their their public image is as responsible neighbors and, you know, the most annoying thing they do is maybe knock on your door once in a while. They don't openly well, yeah, yeah. gun so the, the transformation and, of society. And, and, and just run the CIA. The, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, I mean, the, but the Mormons, going back to what I said before, are kind of the peak example of like, I'm an American just like you. Like, I'm the, I'm the next door neighbor. I just happen to have nine wives. <laughs> I mean, well, well, no, that's... Those would be like break away from. Yeah, I guess that's yeah, those ones do that, get persecuted. Yeah, they, those ones really are kind of you know. Yeah. Yeah, those are like FLDS and yeah. and various other Mormon yeah. splinter groups. Yeah. In are, fact, are like Mormons went so American that they have a, you know, an eschatological view of America that could even be comparable to the way that evangelicals view Israel. Right. Right. That's, and, yeah, that's and exactly so correct. They yeah. out Americanist uh, the mm-hmm. Americans. Right. I mean, the Constitution is practically a divine document. Yep, yep. So, uh, and of course, most religious bodies for either doctrinal or cultural or whatever reason are, are never going to take that step. And, you know, even even within America itself, that stance makes the Mormons, you know, a, a bit strange, a bit out of the ordinary. Um, but the signal... That signal is still something that's very confusing to uh, what we could call the culture of the governing class in America. Well, we could go on to discuss the Zizek-Peterson debate further, or we could talk about the the, the Balkans article we just published earlier today. Uh, but I think you know we're coming up on two hours, so we're gonna wow cut it off here. This is an awesome discussion. Yeah, now that, uh, now that we've one, pissed off if, everybody, yeah, <laughs> I can just close with one. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Matt. Which is that you know there's this notion in geopolitics that there's nothing new under the sun, and I think in in preparing for this podcast, I was thinking about you know we're talking about trouble in the Balkans, we're talking about you know um, the American power in the world, and and kind of the uh, you know the Russian kind of turn towards orthodoxy to kind mm-hmm. of uh, as a kind of nationalistic tool. I mean, we could be having this discussion like nineteen thirteen, and I think right. it would, like it would be very <laughs> it would be very similar. Yeah. like it would be very familiar to like the the kind of the statesman. Of, yeah, you know, of yeah, the like the, the Balkans article was just like very briefly. It's like, all right, well, here's how the Balkans could end up being a powder keg, and this small diplomatic thing could end up like turning into a very large diplomatic situation. It's like, hmm, have we seen this before <laughs> from yeah. the Balkans? Yeah, sure. and so it, I think like it it makes me. In some ways, um, you know, that's that's why I was happy to write this Hilger piece because I think right. we have to kind of learn learn from our history and in in um, you know everything that's old is kind of new again. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that, that's 
that's one of the the fundamental sort of assumptions that that we have to take here is like there's a lot of patterns that repeat over time and across space that yeah uh, and as you study these things in different contexts you come to see the patterns themselves uh, and they're thus better able to actually history predict is real. what's going on. Yes, Thesis, his, history is real. History is real. History is real. I know we don't talk that much about history, but but uh, it is a very important thing to understand. And with that, I think that's all about the time we have for this episode, episode number six. Uh, this has been The Palladium Crew with Matt Ellison. Matt, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, guys. And and you can follow him at, at Matt G. Ellison on Twitter. You should do that. And don't uh, forget that he failed the water challenge. And he did. That, fit that's M.G. Ellison. M.G. Yeah, M.G. Ellison. And uh, I need my need <laughs> thousands of people to you know get the right get the right handle. That's right, 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 right. And uh, yeah, he did fail the water challenge. And and we'll leave it at that. And see you all next week. All right. Thanks, everyone.